As you know, today is Good Friday, the day that the ancient church set aside to, to, um, as the day that, that corresponds with the, the Passover and the day that our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And so today we remember what our Lord did for us and what he did for our salvation. And here we see the glory of Jesus Christ. Here his glory really shines brightly. In fact, we could say that the, the deeper we dig into the darkness of the cross, the more light reflects the glory of our Savior. And I pray that our time together this morning will accurately reflect both the darkness and the glory, that Christ will be exalted as we study his humiliation. I called the message today, uh, Delivered Up for Our Trespasses, which comes from Romans 4.25. On Sunday, we're going to look at the the rest of that verse, raised up for our justification. But really, to to kind of frame our thoughts this morning, and we're we're really just going to focus on the atonement. We're going to just kind of use John 3, verses 14 to 16. And so if you would, open your Bibles there. Uh, I'm not necessarily going to preach this passage. I'm not going to kind of do what I normally do, like an expository sermon on this passage. But I want to kind of use this passage as a a framework to to preach on the larger theme of the atonement. And so I'm hoping that this is going to be something like a theological sermon on the atonement. And even as we begin, let me just kind of tell you what atonement means. In English, if we could break it up or break it down to at-one-ment, if you just kind of think about how atonement is spelled at-one-ment. And so atonement is something that brings two hostile parties together. It it makes them at-one with one another. Another way to say this at-one is to use the word reconciliation. And so the hostile parties that are involved in this atonement are God and man, holy God and sinful man. And the atonement is what reconciles us to God. It's what, it's what brings us to God and makes us at one with God. It's what brings us to a place where we're at peace with God, whereas formerly we were hostile towards God and, and he was hostile towards us. His wrath was against us. A fuller definition of the atonement, this is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, it's, quote, the work Christ did by his life and death to earn our salvation. The work that Christ did by his life and death to earn our salvation. That's what we're talking about this morning. Well, if you would look at our text, Matthew or, or Matthew, John chapter 3, verse starting at verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now this is a passage that you likely know quite well, but but hopefully this morning we can look at it with new eyes. And, and what I want to do is I want to draw out six elements to consider from this passage, uh, I think I put it differently in your outline, but I didn't, I didn't grab an outline this morning. This is one of those days I should have grabbed an outline. But, um, anyway, six elements. I think I said six essential elements, uh, about the atonement or something like that. Um, nobody wants to signal me it, so you can, you can look at it in your outline. But 
Um, we're going to consider this then under, under six headings. And, and first of all, we want to see the illustration of the atonement in verse 14. Again, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so as Moses lifted up the, the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And, and what Moses did in the wilderness illustrates what happened to Jesus when he was lifted up on the cross. Now, John is referring us back to Numbers chapter 21. And so if you would go to Numbers chapter 21... Starting in verse 4, Numbers 21, 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And so let's notice a a couple things from this story. The, The people were impatient and they spoke against the Lord. They spoke against Yahweh. They spoke against Moses and they were ungrateful really for God's deliverance from Egypt. And they're ungrateful for his provision of the manna in the wilderness. And, and in short, they sinned against the Lord. And as a judgment for their sin, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And many of the people died. And they realized as the the serpents were killing them, they realized that this was the judgment of God upon them for their sin. And so they confessed their sin and they asked Moses to pray to the Lord that the Lord would take away the judgment. And so the Lord had Moses make this bronze serpent, this bronze replica of a serpent and, and, and it was on a, a pole and extended. And if anyone was bit by this, by the, these serpents, they would, they would need to look at the bronze serpent, lift it up on a standard. And, and anyone who did this instead of dying would live. And so when God's judgment came on a person, when they were bitten by the, by a serpent, they, if they looked up to the, the serpent on the standard, they would be delivered from God's judgment. And the comparison here is a, a, a double comparison. If you go back to John chapter 3, and uh, let's do that. Go back to John chapter 3. The, the lifting up of the serpent is compared to the lifting up of Christ. And we'll soon see that to be lifted up refers to his suffering on the cross. Now, the, the second part of the comparison is, is between looking at or looking to the serpent and believing. So if you look at verse 15 of our text, it says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And again, in in verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have 
eternal life. And so there's this comparison between the lifting up of Jesus and the serpent, and there's this comparison with looking versus believing in the Son. And so to be delivered from the judgment of the serpents, one had to look to the bronze serpent on the standard. And this would have required, if you think about it, this would have required some measure of faith. You know, they would have had to believe God's word. They would have had to trust that what God had said to Moses, that by looking at the serpent, they would have had to trust that by doing that, they would live. And this looking then is a perfect illustration of faith. The Israelite who who looked to God's promised deliverance would be saved from God's judgment, just as the one who looks to Christ will be saved from God's judgment. The Israelite did nothing but trust what God had provided, and so we do nothing but trust in what God provided for us in Christ. And so looking and believing really are, are parallel realities. Now, I guess there's one more comparison here, and and. That's the similar result in both situations. The Israelite who looked to the bronze serpent would live and not die. And similarly, the believer will not perish but have eternal life. And so the lifting up of the serpent pointed forward to lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to the serpent for deliverance from judgment or or for, for life instead of death was a picture or became a picture of looking to Christ in order for deliverance from judgment, from perishing, as our text puts it. And that deliverance is also called in our text eternal life, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so that's, number one, the illustration of the atonement. Number two, look at the uh, achievement of the atonement. And we're going to spend a bit more time here. We're going to kind of spend the largest portion of our time in this section, the achievement of the atonement, because... This is where we want to talk about the atonement itself. Notice in verse 14, it says, uh, sorry, that so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so the, the Son must be lifted up. The Son must be lifted up. In verse 15, God gave his only begotten son in verse in sorry in verse 16 God gave his only begotten son and both lifted up and and gave are speaking about the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ lifted up is used as to, to describe raising something up as Moses lifted up the serpent putting it on a pole but it's also used metaphorically to mean to be exalted or to cause enhancement and honor to kind of lift somebody up in front of the people fame or power But John's gospel uses this word only to speak of Christ being lifted up on the cross. And it's used two times in chapter 3, one time in chapter 8, and another two times in chapter 12. In John 8, and you could you could turn there if you wanted, John 8, look at verse 23. Right around verse 20, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he came from heaven. He came from the Father. And then in verse 23, it says, and and he was saying to them, verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, but I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die 
in your sins. Literally there in verse 24, it's unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is one of the I am statements in the book of John where Jesus presents himself as the eternally existent God. And look at how they respond in verse 25. It says there, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And again, it's it's just literally there, I am in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And so when you lift up the Son of Man, that speaks about the crucifixion. And look at verse 29 as well. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And so God the Father sent God the Son to be crucified. And the Son always did and always acted out of obedience to his Father. He always did the things that were pleasing to the Father. And that especially includes his being lifted up. And so turn, turn then to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, in verse 23, the, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that is the, the hour of his death there. And then in verse 24, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus is saying that he's going to die, but the the death that he's going to die is going to bear much fruit. Look down at verse 27. He says, now that my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it Again, look down at verse 32, and I, Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the people understood that, that Jesus was talking about how he would be glorified in his death. Again, look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And notice the word there that the, the, the Son must be lifted up. The Son of Man, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and, and he will remain forever, as the law said. But first, he had to be crucified. First, he had to be lifted up on the cross. He had to die. Now, of course, it's impossible for him to be held by death's power, and, and the apostles talk about that in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. 
that he had to rise from the dead, and he did rise from the dead, and we're going to talk about that on Sunday, but before he rose from the dead, he had to die. And again, notice that word in verse 34, he must, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so we need to ask then, well, why did Jesus die? What was the purpose of his death? And we can answer that question by going back to chapter 3 of our text. Go ahead and turn back there again. John chapter 3. In verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now often in Scripture, this, this verb to give is used in, in conjunction with love and laying down of life. Love is giving oneself. Love's not just merely a feeling, but it's, it's a giving of oneself. And I want to take you to a, a number of Scriptures that show God's love and Christ's love and that He gave Himself for us. He laid down His life for us. And with this, we'll also see why He gave Himself for us. First of all, go to Go to Mark chapter 10. Look at Mark 10, 45. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here's why Jesus came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He gave his life as a ransom. And a ransom is a, a price paid to release somebody from bondage. It's a price paid to set somebody free. And so as a, 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 it's a ransom there for many. And that word there for means in the place of or instead of many. We were captive to our sins and Jesus came to free us by giving us his life, by giving his life in our place. His death was the cost of our freedom. And so he gave himself as this ransom payment that we might go free. Look at Titus chapter 2. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then note verse 14 especially, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And what I, saw, what I really want us to see here is that Christ, he gave himself for us. That word for there means, again, on behalf of us. He gave himself on our behalf. He gave himself to redeem us. And again, the idea of redeeming is to purchase us, to, to buy us, to, to buy us from every lawless deed and to purify us to cleanse us for himself. And so we begin to see more clearly now that the connection between our sin and Christ giving himself for us. Let's go to another one. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. I believe I preached this last Good Friday, Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. It says there, 
in verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That word there, he gave himself up for us. Again, there's this connection here between Christ's love for us and his giving himself up for us. And again, that word for means on behalf of and, and points to the substitutionary nature of his giving. He gave himself up as a substitute for us. Here also, his, his giving is called, uh, in the NASB, it's an, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God in the ESV, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And those two words point us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the, the pure, innocent animals were sacrificed on behalf of the defiled and guilty people. And the Old Testament sacrifices were often for atonement. Again, to, to bring God and sinful man together that they might be reconciled. And it was done in the Old Testament through the sacrifice of animals, sacrifices which always pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would actually take away sin. And the sacrifice of Christ who gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. Now let me just read a a couple of other texts for us. I'm actually going to read these out of the New American Standard Version of the Bible. These are a number of verses that just show us again that Christ's death was for our sins. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. He died to redeem us, to ransom us from that penalty. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And so he died on behalf of our sins once for all in order to bring us to God, to reconcile us to God. 1 John 2.2, it says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And again, propitiation is a sacrifice that puts away wrath. God was angry. God was justly angry because of, of our sin against him. And propitiation removes his wrath by paying the penalty for our sins. And now because of that sacrifice, because of that offering, Christ or God is propitious towards us. He is favorable towards us who receive the benefit of that sacrifice. First John 4 and verse 10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, for on behalf of our sins. Matthew twenty six twenty eight. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And so it's poured out on behalf of many unto the forgiveness of sins. Luke twenty two nineteen again, I think the parallel text, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. This is given on behalf of you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so both the New Testament and the Old Testament teach so clearly that Jesus gave his life as a sacrificial offering to pay the penalty for our sins. 
And he died as a substitute. He died in our place on our behalf. He died instead of us as our representative. And he died for our sins because of the guilt of our sins. And that penalty had to be paid. Now, as we think about this, I want to show you more because it wasn't just Jesus' sacrifice that was a substitute for us, but in reality, it was his whole life, the whole life that he lived, he lived as our representative. He came to this world to represent us to the Father. And to show you this, let me ask a question. What was the requirement for any lamb or bull that was offered in the Old Testament? What was the requirement for a sacrifice that was going to be given to God? What was the requirement for an offering that God would accept? And of course, it had to be an an animal without defect, with no blemish. And that's why Christ, to be an offering for our sin, he himself had to be without sin. He had to be a sinless lamb. And so 1 Peter 1.18, again from the New American Standard Bible, says, knowing that you were, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb without, uh, a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so we were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. We were redeemed with the blood of Christ. Or Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so Christ is this unblemished and spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was holy, he was innocent, he was undefiled, he was separated from sinners, he was a sinless offering for our sins. And so we should begin to see now why his life was almost as important as his death. You see, if he had failed in his obedience in his life, then he couldn't have succeeded in the purpose of his death by being the perfect offering that we needed to pay the penalty for our sins. And so Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, it summarizes the work of Christ this way. It says, therefore, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's speaking about Adam's sin. His one act of sin corrupted the entire human race. His act of disobedience made all of us sinners so that we're born into this world as sinners. But then the verse goes on to say, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And of course, the obedience that we're talking about with this one man is the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. And by his obedience, many will be made righteous. And so Adam's disobedience made many sinners, whereas Christ's obedience is going to make many righteous. All who are in Christ are made righteous in him. And so there's this connection between obedience and righteousness. 
Jesus' obedience as the God-man earned for us, as our representative, it earned for us a righteousness that makes us just or makes us holy before God. And so it's a justifying righteousness. His obedience earned for us this perfect righteousness that Romans talks about as the righteousness of God. And so you see then that in order for us to have eternal life, we needed more than just the forgiveness of our sins. We needed righteousness. In order for us to have fellowship with a holy God, we needed something positive, and that is we needed holiness, we needed righteousness. And again, in Romans 3.21, it's called the righteousness of God. And this, is, this righteousness is, is what's behind the word justification. If we are justified by faith... We are declared righteous. It means that we are counted righteous in Christ. His righteousness is given to us. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul expresses his need for a righteousness that's not his own, but one that comes from God through faith in Christ. You see, our own righteousness, it's like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, verse 6. And so we need the righteousness of another in order to stand before a holy God, and that is the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us. This is the achievement of the atonement. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 for a minute. Philippians chapter 2. I just want to kind of show you this one more, one more place here. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself... By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Christ's obedience here we see by becoming obedient to the point of death. It really began with the incarnation, and it, this obedience grew throughout his life on the earth, and it, it, it accumulated, it, it ended with his death on the cross. And through his life, Jesus earned this perfect record of righteousness. And by his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. And so his obedience has achieved for us both the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life, both taking away the negative, the debt of sin that we owed, and giving to us something positive, the holiness that he had earned for us and this is given to us and, and to all who are in him. And so that's the, the uh, um, achievement of the atonement. Let's go to number three now. Let's go back to our text in John. I want to show you something else about the atonement. Let's, let's see, thirdly, let's see the necessity of the atonement. The necessity of the atonement. And Jesus shows it here in our, in our text. 
Again, John chapter 3. So we see it first in the illustration in, in Numbers 21. Remember back to Numbers 21? Moses had, if you think about it, if, if Moses hadn't lifted up the serpent, the people would have perished. And anyone who failed to look at the serpent in that moment, they would have, they would have died in their sins by the, the poisonous serpents that were in the wilderness. The bronze serpent was necessary in that sense to keep one from perishing. And, and Jesus sets up a similar dichotomy in our text. Either, either he is lifted up or we perish. And so the, the, we see then the necessity of the atonement. If there was no atonement, there would be no salvation. Jesus is either lifted up or we perish. Look, look at it again, starting in verse 14. Even, and, and, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Can you, can you kind of see it there? If the Son of Man is not lifted up, then we perish. And if he is lifted up, whoever believes in him shall not perish. Now, the next kind of way that we see this is in, in that little word there, must, in verse 14. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. In Greek, that little, it's a little particle there that, that means it is necessary. And so listen carefully here. It, it's not necessary. It wasn't necessary for God to save anyone. You know, when the angels sinned, God didn't spare them. Instead, he cast them into hell, 2 Peter 2, 2, 4. And God really, he could have done the same thing for us. But once God decided to save us, it became necessary to do so through the death and life of Christ. You see, if there had been another way, surely God would have taken it. But it was, it was impossible for God to simply ignore our sin. God had to punish sin. And to do so, to do anything else would, would be really to deny himself, again, something that he can never do. Therefore, in order to adopt us as sons and to bring us to himself, and at the same time, for him to remain holy and righteous and just, a, desi- a divine necessity occurs that the penalty for sin must be paid for. And this penalty was paid to the full as the Son of Man drank the cup of his Father's wrath on the cross and he suffered in body and soul to take away our sin. Now we could show the necessity of the, of the atonement from other texts, but we want to keep kind of keep moving here this morning. And so let's talk now about number four. Let's, let's talk about the benefit of the atonement, the benefit of the atonement, number four. And the benefit I think is best seen in, in light of the contrast that we've already set up. Again, we either perish or we have eternal life. To perish is to pay the penalty for our sin, eternity in hell. The alternative that Jesus presents for us is eternal life through him, eternity in God's presence. Eternal life begins now, the moment that one is born again, and it continues forever. Eternal life is basically synonymous with salvation. We are saved by grace through faith and we receive eternal life 
by faith. Again, if you look at our text, it says uh, in verse 14, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. And then again, verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. We see a similar thing in John 5 and verse 24 where Jesus says there, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In John chapter 4, Jesus says he gives living water that springs up to eternal life. In John chapter 6, he gives food that endures to eternal life. In John chapter 10 and verse 27, a verse that I think we know quite well, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, that they will never, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In John 17 and verse 2, Jesus says that he gives eternal life to all that the Father gives him. Jesus is the, the giver and the gift of eternal life. John 17 verse 3 says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so this eternal life is knowing God and, and knowing Christ and, and knowing there is not merely knowing about, but it, it refers to an intimate relationship. The one who knows God in this way hears the voice of Christ in Scripture, believes in Christ such that he or she is joined to Christ and delights in this relationship that we have with Christ. The real benefit of the atonement is that it, it brings us into fellowship with God. And fellowship with God and with Christ is a joy unspeakable and full of glory. The real good news of the gospel is not, not merely that we won't go to hell. The good news is, is not that, that even that our sins are forgiven or that we are made righteous as good as those things are. It's not even that we're going to go to heaven as, as wonderful as that is. The ultimate good news of the atonement is that because of what Jesus Christ did as our representative, we have been reconciled to God so that we can enjoy Him forever. We can enjoy God because Jesus made us right with God. He made us righteous in God's sight so that there's nothing between us and God any longer. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And this is the wonderful exchange of the cross. <clears throat> Jesus who knew no sin was made sin. He was treated by God as though He had sinned every sin of everyone who would ever believe in Him. And He bore God's wrath against sin in our place. And we in Him become the righteousness of God. God views us as having the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. God can now say of us what He once said of Christ, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so what a blessing to be found in Christ, perfectly reconciled to God, knowing God and, and knowing Christ. 
First John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And so the benefit of the atonement is eternal life, reconciliation with God, this knowledge of God that we can enjoy him forever. And now let's think about number five. Let's think about the cause of the atonement. Number five, the cause of the t- atonement. And, and here we want to see what moved God to send his son to suffer in our place. What moved God? What, what caused God to do this? What, what is the, what is behind this, this great love that God has poured out on us, which is really what it is? God doesn't love us because his son died for us. This is important to think about. God doesn't love us because his son died for us, although he can have fellowship with us now because his son died for us, but he sent his son to die because he loved us. Maybe you didn't catch that. God doesn't love us because his son died for us. He sent his son to die because he loved us. God was angry with us because of our sin, but at the same time, he loved us again in our text for God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The love of God is the cause of the atonement. The atonement doesn't make God love us more. It, it shows us the love of God. Again, 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, the atonement... It, makes God propitious towards us. It, it, it removes our guilt. It's a sacrifice that takes away the, the guilt of our sin, but it, it undoes the, the separation that we had between God, the, the judicial and the relational separation that we experienced. But, but it's not the reason that God loves us. No, God loved us while we were yet sinners. Romans 5 verse 7, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to even die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And again, Ephesians 2 and verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And so friends, behold the, the great love which God has. Behold the great love with which he loved us When you see the only begotten son come down from heaven and empty himself by taking on humanity, he lived in our place and he paid the penalty for our sin. What a love we see from the father. What a, what a giving this is. What a sacrifice that he made. What a price to pay for such wretched sinners as us that, that God would send his own son. The suffering of Christ through this, this whole earthly life was planned by God before the foundation of the world and every grief of his soul, every measure of pain, every sin that he carried was known by God before it happened. And yet God didn't shrink from giving us his son, from sending his son. 
The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all united in this decision to extend this saving love. And so behold the love of God and really in every chapter of the Gospels as we see what the Son endured. And in the atonement we see the glory of God and the love of God and the love of Christ on display. And so we should draw from this the this this knowledge of God. This is a, a knowledge of God that should really satisfy our souls. It should delight our hearts. It's a, a knowledge of God that gives joy and peace in believing. And now I want to address maybe those who don't know this blessing, who don't know this Savior. If you're here this morning and and, and you aren't saved by Christ, uh, what you need to know is how to get this applied to you, how to how to receive this benefit. How can you be made right in the sight of a holy God? How can what Jesus did for sinners count for for you this morning as a sinner? And we're going to call this number six. We'll call this the reception. The reception of the atonement. How do I receive the benefits of the atonement? Again, look at our text this morning. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Twice Jesus says here, eternal life, deliverance from perishing. It's for whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever believes will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him shall not perish. What a, what a wonderful word that is, whoever, whoever, whether, whether they be ever so sinful before they believed, whoever, whatever their situation, whatever their sins, whether they're religious or not, whether they're righteous or unrighteous, whether they're male or female, whether they're old or young, whoever believes. It doesn't matter who you are so long as you believe. Romans 10.13 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.11, the scripture says, whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. But the benefits of the atonement are limited to whoever believes. And so we need to ask, well, what does it mean to believe in him? See, it's more than merely believing facts about Christ. It's more than acknowledging that, that Jesus was truly God and truly man and that he lived to save sinners. Listen, Believing means accepting the facts of the gospel as true, recognizing that those facts are exactly what you need as a sinner, and then trusting Christ to do what he promised. You see, saving faith trusts Christ. Saving faith looks to Christ for deliverance from God's judgment. Saving faith comes to Christ. Saving faith receives Christ, it follows Christ, it learns from Christ. Saving faith becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. We could even say that saving faith loves Christ for what he did for us on the cross. And saving faith joins us to Christ in this intimate union. And that's why verse 15 says, whoever believes in him will have or 
the ESV translates it may have, but the idea there is a certainty. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes will be joined to Christ and in him all the blessings of salvation are found. And so if you've not believed Christ, if you're here this morning and you haven't believed Christ, I would urge you to do so now. Call on him. Ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him to save you. Trust in his promises. Trust him who died for sinners. Whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, I've given you a a lot of information today. The illustration of the atonement. We've seen the achievement of the atonement. We've seen the necessity of the atonement, the benefit of the atonement, the cause of the atonement, the great love of God which he had for us, and the reception of the atonement, how to receive these benefits to yourself. This is that which Paul calls of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Matthew 7, uh, Matthew 27, 45 says that as Jesus was crucified, darkness fell upon all the land. But in that darkness, we see the light of the glory of God and of Christ. And so we're going to celebrate now what Christ accomplished on our behalf as we participate in the Lord's Supper. But first, we're going to sing a song in closing, but let's, let's pray. Father, We come before you this morning and we thank you for, again, the the crucifixion of Christ. Thank you for his whole life of obedience. Thank you for his death on the cross. Thank you for the, the payment that he paid, the ransom, the redemption. Thank you that in him we are justified, Father. And we pray again for anyone here who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't have this eternal life, who isn't born again. We ask that you would save them. We ask that you would open their eyes to see the greatness and glory of Christ. And Father, for those of us who are saved, again, no words can thank you for what you've done for us, this great salvation. We again just pray that you would be glorified for what you accomplished on our behalf. We thank you now and we will thank you forever. We look forward to thanking you in heaven in perfect song, but now we We come to to worship you in the song that we can do here on earth. And, And so we pray that you would help us as we celebrate the supper and as we sing this closing song, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.